Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to another episode of the VFX Lounge, where we talk mainly about visual effects. Today, we have our lead compositing instructor in Vancouver and global head of education, Gans Ramalingam. Hello, Gans. Hello, Q. Hi. Uh, today's podcast is going to be a little bit different because you and I are coworkers, so we talk almost every single day. So before we head into any major topic, tell me a little bit about yourself and how you ended up here in Canada teaching visual effects. Oh, wow. That's a very long story, but <laughs> to kind of condense it, I think you have to go back to around 2007. Um, I think I was in the cinema in January and I saw a trailer for Transformers. Mm. And I think I was squealing like a little kid seeing Optimus Prime transform. Yeah. And so I was like, oh my God, look at this. Uh, you know, your childhood. The Michael Bay one? Yeah, the Michael Bay yeah. one. The, the, your childhood fantasy mm. just come through. Mm -hmm. You know, you watch Generation 1 Transformers, everything is just blocky. Yeah. Now to see a fully realized character mm -hmm. who looks for the real, by the way. Really? Yeah. And so I was like, okay, that's great. The VFX have finally reached a point where it's indistinguishable from, um, you know, I can't tell the CG from whatever I'm seeing. It's so realistic. So then after that, 2008, Iron Man came out. Mm. And that's the launch of the... I was just the, about to say about Iron Man. Yeah. And ILM took that technology and pushed forward with um, Iron Man. And the whole MCU started from there. And then 2009, uh, it was Avatar. Mm. And when Avatar came out, I was like, oh my God, if I were to st still stay in Singapore, I'm never going to be able to learn how to do these things. So mm. I started to look around. I basically packed my bags and came to <laughs> Vancouver Island yeah. to learn. Not even Vancouver. <laughs> yeah, not even Vancouver. <laughs> I had no idea where Vancouver Island was because I was so busy with work and I just literally, and the, the day before I came to Canada was my best friend's wedding. So I basically went and helped out at his wedding and took a nap just before midnight and then packed my bags and then flew to Canada. Uh, that's then I met Mark Bernard um, and basically I spent one year on Vancouver Island. After which, because I had prior teaching experience in Singapore, uh, uh, I basically joined forces with Mark and Ria to teach visual effects and the unique thing about teaching at Lost Boys was Mark was very concerned about the poor state of education he didn't want uh, in lots of universities or even polytechnics were what we call diploma mills mm. they would just get a bunch of students and then the training was poor training was irrelevant it was outdated and these kids came out with the skill sets but the industry was needing you know people with more advanced skills so there was a space to basically for Lost Boys to exist, to say, why not we provide high-end training? Um, and that's basically how for the last and 12 years, you know, we as a school tried to achieve that. Um, that's the other problem is also the birth of the internet, right? Because, mm -hmm. you know, with the rise of the internet and the amount of information, people actually get confused now as to what they need to do. Like if you were to try to research even like, what is the best cell phone to buy? Mm. There's an endless amount of research you can do. And then there are like back and forth arguments between, oh, this phone is better than that phone. Right. And then people will be like, what's wrong with the iPhone 12, 12, 13, right? So then you get confused. Like, what is the right phone for me? Right. Right. So, and no one is going to take a stand and say, this is the right way to do it. So when you're learning visual effects on YouTube, mm. there's so many so-called experts mm. teaching you how to do it. Right. But what is the right way? Exactly. <laughs> so our job at the school was to kind of demystify it and say, okay, this is how all the studios do it and this is the proper way to do it. Mm. And then we created a curriculum where you sign up, you learn everything correctly so that when you go into the industry, you know what you're doing, you feel confident about what you're doing mm. as opposed to having watched, you know, a thousand YouTube tutorials right. and then getting confused as to yeah. what's happening. Plus... Another problem with just information is it is not coherent and it's not connected. So watching video one and video two, there's really no link. Whereas if you come to a program like ours, it's more like, okay, the first project leads to the second project. That information you learn from the first two projects leads to the third project and so on. And I mean, 
the program that you guys developed was because there's a lack of education in industry, which now that there is this education, you guys have been undoubtedly extremely successful. I mean, look at your guys' placement rate. Every student that you've had, which you've had over 200 students now, have entered the industry in almost every student that we can name. There's definitely a lost boys there. Do you think that's a testament to the success of the education that lost boys provides here? I think it's many factors, but one cannot take away from the students' hard work and mm. uh, determination. Um, Lost Boys have basically tried to create an environment to get these guys. Mm. You know, so our whole philosophy was like, you know, get the studio twenty four seven, get like minded people together, give them all the resources at their disposal, and let them play for a year, and you see what happens, <laughs> yeah. right? And let them and say it's okay to fail. Mm. You know, I'm here for you. I will grab you know if you fall, I'll pick you up <laughs> mm. and then you can keep going. And I think that's what a lot of people lack on their own. Mm. But as a collective, we were able to accomplish quite a bit. Mm. And it's also to be collaborative. Because when you're working from home, it's like I do something, I do not know, no one can help me. My friends are also with similar experience. But coming to a school like this, you have friends who have similar experience, also friends with different experience. Some of them are further ahead in their visual effects education than others. And then you have um, instructors who have, you know, two decades of experience. And all of that is at your disposal. Mm. And, and also, we are just dedicated to just this one craft. You know, so like if you spend 40 hours a week mm. doing compositing and you do it for... 40 weeks 50 weeks you know the time adds up yeah right and eventually you and i always like to say your brain gives up and you just learn <laughs> it just starts to learn because you're doing it so often yeah because you're so immersed in the language of visual effects mm -hmm. you're watching breakdowns you're watching movies with your friend you're analyzing things mm -hmm. and figuring out things every day is you're solving problems mm -hmm. yeah and that trains you and gives you the confidence to be very successful. Right. And how did you guys figure that out? Because, I mean, let's be honest. The formula that has come up with Lost Boys, creating this environment and, you know, teaching them these core skills that are ready for the industry. What questions did you guys ask yourselves to say, this is how we have to do it so that they're successful? Because it's, it's not like the other schools. It's not like traditional schools where you go to lectures and you learn about it. You know, it's, it's not... It's not really practical. So how did you guys evolve into this form that has proven to be very successful? I would say it's actually came out because of frustration. <laughs> oh, yeah. And the reason I say that is because as um, just working with other people, um, Mark having his own studio, we, we tend to find people who are not very well trained. And the question is, why don't you know these things that we, we learn through experience? So why are the schools not teaching it? Because like I said, this education is outdated. The, the schools are not talking to the industry. The schools are not looking at what is actually happening right now. So one of the things that I did when I was trying to teach was I collect all the demo reels from every studio. So And then I start to look for patterns. Okay, do you do muscle fire? Do you do screen burnings, do you do wall replacement, do you do character integration, CG integration, all that. So we create first a database of all kinds of demo reels and all the shots they do. Then you talk to junior artists and ask, hey, what is the task that you do at your work? Uh, and then you talk to mid-level artists, and then you talk to senior level artists. So now you have a whole database of what studios do, what are the tasks of each of the levels of seniority at the company. And then you say, okay, in order to get a guy in that position, he needs to know how to do this. And then uh, we do what we call the Singaporean way. We reverse engineer. Yeah. In order to get the result, how do we need to start? So mm -hmm. we just walk backwards. Okay, in order to learn, like, say, muzzle fire, you don't go and teach the history of muzzle fire and the history of guns. Yeah. You basically just say, okay, we need to talk about how light works. So then... What about light that we need to talk about? So we need to talk about the brightness, the um, the light decay, and then the way the light casts the shadow. And then we create resource materials to find here are evidence of real world resources. And here are evidence of cinematic resources. What your client would expect, yeah. it, right? And then 
try to kind of blend them together. And then that's what we teach. And that philosophy is applied to every course at Lost Boys. Mm. So as opposed to trying to teach someone like from like um, start to finish, we actually go from finish to start. Mm. And then we just like, okay, now we know exactly, because that's the most efficient way to get it done yeah. in the short, uh, in the time that we have. Mm -hmm. Because you don't need to know the history of visual effects with George Melies and all that. It's nice to know, but it's not really going to help you yeah. when you're at death. Yeah. <laughs> so we leave that to other experts who wrote, who write books about history and stuff so like that. So speaking of photorealism, how do you teach that? Like, how do you teach someone to know how to create something that's photoreal? Because, I mean, yeah, we got our eyes, we know what looks real, but how to make something artificial look real is completely different from knowing. So to me, it seems like a very hidden talent almost, despite it being something we can fully comprehend and understand. And how we see things around our role can be subjectively different, despite there being a single answer for what something can actually look like physically. So how do you teach photorealism and how should someone approach to learn photorealism when they're doing compositing and stuff? Okay. Um, I think it comes down to the philosophy of what the schools or the instructors have. Mm. Are you teaching visual effects training where I teach you all to use all the buttons and all the software? Mm -hmm. Or are you teaching how to make photoreal images? Mm. So for me, it's always been about photorealism. I want to see work that I believe. There's a great poster in X-File that says, I want to believe. <laughs> and, and I always uh, try to remember that. And it's like, I want to believe what you're doing. Yeah. And why is it not working, right? So then it comes down to two things. It's observation and replication. So the two things that needs to be trained. And number one is observation. And that's where most people lack. Be just because you do not know what you are actually seeing and you do not know how to analyze, then no matter what tool sets you have, you're never going to make a good image. Mm -hmm. So part of the training is to dissect. Even the first project we have for comp is the title project. It's a simple wall replacement. It's, we shoot a wall and we say, look, this is the real wall. Look at all the details around it. You know, you can look at the shadow details, the imperfections, the dirt, the grime. It tells a story of weathering, aging. If this thing has been Vancouver, it's been rained on for three years, mm. this is how it looks. Now, I want you to make a wall. I want you to change the design, but I want you to keep all of that weathering on the wall. Mm. So then you would have to analyze the different sections. Now you know that. The next question is, how do I do it? Yeah. And that's where the, the training of the nodes and say, okay, this node does this, this node does that. If you combine them together, you can create this effect. Sometimes it leads you to happy accidents and experimentations, but that's good because you know the target. And the great thing about photorealism is there is a target. If you do visual effects and say, I want to make a lion, just look at a picture of a lion <laughs> and you just try to get there, yeah. right? You don't imagine the lion. And that's where when I first start this program, I talk about the six realities um, just to kind of quickly run through them is uh, that's the physical reality, which is the reality that is the real world. You know, the loss of thermodynamics and all that is, exists. Then you have the photographic reality, the reality in how the camera sees the world. So based on your ISO, your exposure, your shutter, that's the image that you will see. So that's you need to know that as well, or lenses that you use for perspective. How much, if you use a zoom lens, for example, versus a wide lens, the, the perspective can get squished or squashed, right? Uh, and then you get the perceptual reality, how you see the world. And we don't see the world in like a linear way. You know, if you look at a candle and like the sun, you're not necessarily seeing, oh, the sun is a million times brighter than a candle. In your eyes, they look bright. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just, that's how our eyes respond in a non-linear way. Then you have the imagined reality, and this is the reality you get when you're dreaming. Mm -hmm. It kind of cuts away all the details, like like you know, if you're dreaming that one day you're back in like high school or elementary school, you don't see all the details. Yeah. You just see your desk, your teacher, yeah. the whiteboard. So you're cutting away details. So that's actually a dangerous thing to have when you're doing visual effects. 
because we need that detail and you're cutting away detail. So your memory of things is not necessarily as good as a photograph. Right. Then you have the expected reality. This expected reality comes from your imagined reality. In your mind, you have how it should look. Yeah. And sometimes it doesn't necessarily is real. Yeah. You know? And that's why sometimes supervisors sit there and just keep giving you notes like, hi, oh, it doesn't look right, it doesn't mm -hmm. look right. Because they have an image of their mind. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, we don't have the skill to draw it out yeah. or say exactly. You know, that's why we need concept artists and all mm -hmm. these guys. And then finally, you have the approximate reality. Your softwares are not perfect. They're all approximating reality. The light inside a 3D package is an approximation. No software can simulate the the awesomeness of our sun. Mm. You know, so we're cutting corners. Yeah. We cannot, and also we cannot be rendering for an infinite amount of time. Yeah, true. So everything we do is a compromise. Yeah. So then you need to learn where to compromise so that you get the most bang for your buck. Mm. So as a student at Lost Boys, we kind of look at all these realities and try to like pick where we need them and use it for our shots. So it's like a blend of the six realities. Mm -hmm. So you need to be aware of the real world. You need to be aware of the camera world. You need to be aware of how you see something, how you imagine something, how someone expects it to look, and then how the computer is going to simulate that. Right, yeah, awesome. Yeah, which is why it makes visual effects really tedious yeah. to do because imagine you don't talk about any of these things yeah. and you just teach nuke. Yeah. <laughs> right. And then, of course, you end up with garbage looking pictures. Yeah. <laughs> so like that, that is interesting to me because how does an artist make something that isn't real, like magic, dragon, humans flying, look real? For example, I recently watched The Boys and there was a scene where Homelander was flying or hovering down to the ground. And we don't know what it's like to have actual superpowers. And also, humans flying in the air is just not a thing. So, baby humans falling, yes, but flying, no. That's why we, as the audience, watch something and instantly switch off because we know it's fake. Even more so, if a fantastical shot isn't great, it breaks the immersion even faster. So all this to say, how does a VFX artist approach creating photorealism for something that isn't real or can't be referenced to the exact detail? First of all, let me tell you, I think they really want to make it photoreal, mm -hmm. but there are so many budgetary concerns. Yeah, okay. We cannot technically just hire a guy, put him on a cape and then drop him down from a crane mm. and say, this is how he flies, right? Sometimes you don't have that ability to do it. So we do a lot of guessing, but it also comes down to observation and um, because you know, human is actually can fly, but we need to find references or maybe guys on rockets and stuff like that, um, see how they would do it. But I think it comes down to Action and reaction. And I always talk about pro wrestling on this. I used to be a big fan. Mm, you're and still a big fan. I'm still a big fan. <laughs> <laughs> and it's actually because, you know, everyone knows wrestling is fake. And I watch it not because I, I, I'm stupid. <laughs> so everyone always say, Gods, do you know wrestling is fake? I say, yes, I know. But I don't know how it's going to end. It's just like watching a movie. You know, you don't know how it's going to end, right? Sometimes you can predict, but most of the time you don't. And, maybe, and sometimes they, 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 they supplant your expectations and you're like, oh, that's great. Mm. But the thing about wrestling is it's the art of selling. So if a guy were to punch another guy, he has to take the punch and he has to kind of fall back. And the way he falls will kind of inform the audience of how hard the punch was. Obviously, you don't want to punch the guy at full capacity. Mm -hmm. So there is a bit of context. So you see, once the guy gets hit, the other guy has to sell. If he oversells, it looks cartoonish. Mm -hmm. If he undersells, then he feels very weak. Mm -hmm. So there is a sweet spot on selling. Yeah. And that's what we are trying to do in visual effects. So a lot of times it's like, okay, Homelander is flying or Superman is flying. I think if you watch Man of Steel, when every time Superman lands, mm -hmm. the ground cracks mm -hmm. to show like, oh, that amount of inertia slammed into the ground and right. cracks the ground. That gives the illusion that Superman is there in the scene mm -hmm. and he has weight. Yeah. And that's the, I think, the problem with animation sometimes is like the art of the weight is not there. Yeah, I agree. And that reminds me of that movie that I watched, uh, Spider-Man No Way Home. And that part where Andrew Garfield 
is falling and catches MJ, but there's no impact on the ground whatsoever. And I think that is kind of what we're getting at. The the physics behind a superhero is something that we cannot reference, but we can reference real impact, real reactions of our physical world, and that's probably Earth. You know, like why is there no cracks when Andrew Garfield is falling at that incredible speed, uh, and but he doesn't feel like he even impacted anything. You know what I mean? So, and that may give us some context on how to approach photorealism for these fantastical projects is by looking at how this uh, unreal thing can react or impact the world around us and try to reference it from that angle. But it does bug me when I look at certain movies and it's it, there's just this inherent feeling that there's something wrong about it. You know, there's something that's not tangible to that um, effect. I, I think I'll give my two cents on it. And I think this comes down to your expectation of the shot. And when the shot that you're seeing on the screen doesn't match your expectation, mm -hmm. you get a sense of disappointment. Right. And and it's true. And the problem with that is everyone's going to have a different like level mm -hmm. of acceptance of what right. they want to see. And, you know, 10 years from now, if you think back of the shot, you'll remember, like, oh, yeah, he grabbed the girl and then he landed. You're not really going to care about the details on how he landed. Yeah. And that's how memories work, mm -hmm. right? So in the moment of watching the cinema, you can be overly critical about it. But as a story point, it does satisfy the needs. Yeah. And generally for movie making, that's more important than trying to get all the nitty gritty. As artists, of course, each department is obsessed in making yeah. the best looking visuals. But... At the end of the day, is the 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 story needs to be cohesive, and mm. the, the and the visuals are created to help support tell the story. Mm. So that's where I think people need to start to maybe just kind of like step back a bit and say, yeah, I appreciate this as an art form. We are not replicating photorealism and mm. exactly that's the real world. Because if you do everything to the real world, Spider-Man would not exist. Yeah, right? exactly. <laughs> right? As soon as he catches Gwen, she'll just break in half. Yeah. Right? <laughs> right? Yeah, but it's MJ. Yeah. So it's like a lot of weird things like that. Yeah. You just have to like, just in the moment, immerse, you yourself, immerse in yourself. The the reality yeah. of the movie. And I have to say, I would say 98% of the general audience just yeah. watch this movie, have fun, and go Yeah, home. I mean, people need to be less critical about movies that are just made for entertainment. Like, people forget these things are for entertainment purposes. And they're going in as if it's going to be like, I don't know, the next Oscar movie or Sundance film <laughs> entry. You know, just like overly picky about things. But I don't know. The flying will always get to me. I think it's that just, yeah, you know. that could be your pet peeve, like yeah. something that you. It's always you noticed it once, and now you're noticing it forever. Yeah, it's like it's like when you when we were watching um that director Zack Snyder uh directing that zo new zombie movie for I think it was Netflix. I'm not sure. I forget uh, Army of the Dead or the Day of the Dead, whatever it was called. And he just had this serious bouquet in every single shot that he did. And then once I noticed that that um, almost blur, I couldn't stop looking at it, you know? But it's also one of the things that my counter argument to it is like, yeah, it's weird he did it because it doesn't look like any other zombie movie. And maybe that's what he was going for. Mm. We've done zombie movies to death. Yo, yeah. And he is like, let me try something different. Mm. And, you know, Netflix are like, yeah, go for it, man. <laughs> and <laughs> then he, he used like old school Canon lenses yeah. and with crazy depth of feel. Mm to kind of tell the story. It may not be to your liking, but that's actually why sometimes, like, I've always been a big fan of the Josh Lucas, right? If you watch even Star Wars, it's like, Josh Lucas didn't want to make Star Wars like everybody else's sci-fi. Mm. He wanted to make it the way he wanted to mm. do it. You know, like, you know, I think there was a great video about him many years ago talking about painting a house. He said, uh, he wanted to paint the house he said he's going to paint the house white. Mm. And people come and say, you should paint it green. And he said, yeah, it's not bad, green. But I wanted yeah. to make it paint white. I want to do it. Yeah. So that's the filmmaker. Yeah, you may not agree with the filmmaker, mm. but it's his mark on something. Yeah. Like Sam Raimi has his own style. And with the Doctor Strange, yeah. 
there were weird camera angles. People yeah. were all like, what is going on here? <laughs> right? But it's like, that's Sam Raimi's style. Yeah. Yeah, you may not necessarily agree with his style, mm. but he's also not copying anyone. He's, that's his own mark on the right. film. Right, and you were mentioning about selling the shot, selling it to be real. I feel as though that's where people are having the most problems with because the sell to them isn't good enough for what they're expecting it to be. So, for example, like Luke Skywalker in the last episode of The Mandalorian and Leia from Rogue One and most recently Eleven from Stranger Things. Like, this ex- intensive uh, DG makeup, de-aging, deep fake um, pr- procedures. <laughs> this is extremely impressive feats technologically and artistically, but it still seems like the people you're trying to sell to the audience isn't buying it. So how do you bridge this disconnect of sheer technical artistic impressiveness um, and the amazement and the amazing things that they have accomplished to meeting the potentially unrealistic expectations of the audience? Well, first of all, I would say they actually did a pretty good job on both. Mm. And again, I say some people's memory of how Luke should look is actually wrong (laughs) like (laughs) and because you you think that the artists don't look at reference and do whatever they do they Mm -hmm. do all the research the reference they they take their darnest to they Mm -hmm. in fact in they probably would have a software like um like nuke or something or rv and they wipe back and forth between the real guy and the the cg guy they matched everything they put the lighting the problem is the lighting is approximate skin shaders are approximate And then they do their best and give you the visuals. And also, you know he is not young, right? You can't take Mark Hamill and put him now and say his look, right? He's he's, he's much older. So you go into the show knowing that that cannot be possible. So then you over-scrutinize. I had friends who watched uh, Rogue One and when General Tarkin showed up and they're like, oh my God, it's amazing he's there. No one criticized that he's CG. Yeah. They didn't know. Yeah. For them, it just looks like the guy just came back to the movie, right? And that's what the, the studios are looking. Marvel is looking at the general audience, not necessarily trying to make it perfect. Mm. And to be frank, at this point, they might just decide to cast him mm. as a separate actor and just move on yeah. from there. But the technology is getting better. But also humans are good at seeing faces. Since you're born, you're seeing faces. Mm. So all these micro movements, we don't even have words for them. Yeah. Uh, how you, under your eyelids move and all that stuff. Mm. So it's a whole thing. The problem is like, you can spend days, months trying to get the whole face to look right. Mm-hmm. And then you have a thousand shots left to do. Yeah. So every shot is only has a finite amount of time. And mm. we just have to keep doing it and keep going forward. Yes, I like I said, I don't think that one shot distracts from the whole show. I think that is just a matter of not enough information out there about what visual effects actually is. And what I mean by that is the work that goes into making those visual effects shots possible. Because you may know what it looks like, but do you know how it was made? You know, And, and there are so many factors that go into how something is made rather than just knowing what it looks like. And I'll use my own personal experience as an example. Before I came to Lost Boys, I literally thought that there was one person doing the visual effects in the movie. And I got laughed at by everyone here because this is just not how it is. It takes dozens of people and multiple departments to make any given shot work. And if people were able to understand that process rather than only seeing the end result, maybe there will be a greater appreciation for the work that has been done, you know? I think if you can think about thinking about it as like building a house. Mm. You as an individual might have the skills to build one beautiful, freaking awesome house. Mm. But if you're going to house a village and if you take two years building one house yeah. and you want to house 50, 100, 200 people, mm-hmm. you cannot, you'll take forever. Yeah. <laughs> so you need to have a system where, and then you need to tell in the system, everyone, hey, you you do the building uh, concrete, you will do the the um, the infrastructure, you will do the plumbing, whatever, right? That way, we all take our skill sets that we're good at and we put it together and then we can build hundreds of houses. Mm. And that's how visual effect shots are done. You can have one amazing artist who can do one amazing shot, mm. but in a movie like Avengers, you have 2,000 shots. Yeah. 
You know, if that one guy takes four months to do one shot, he's <laughs> trying. When will he finish this movie? Yeah. Right. So yeah, we have to figure out a system of creating shots, mm. and studios are not only doing one movie. I'm pretty sure companies like DNEC might have twelve to twenty shows running at the same time. Yeah. So it's a lot of work. Right. And and how many feedbacks you get is also important, and feedbacks are also very costly because mm-hmm. if you say this is wrong, and go back to the drawing board, that means fifty people who are involved. We'll have to redo everything, right? So studios have to be efficient about it too, yeah. right? And what is then one visual effects shot as of recently that has blown you away or has impressed you a great deal? I think there's one really cool sequence in Doctor Strange. I still remember when he goes into the multiverse. Oh and yeah, he's jumping through all this different universe, and then. And each frame, I think it's like four seconds yeah. long, and I was like, the amount of work that went into each of this universe. Yeah. And it was nice to see the cartoon universe, the, yeah. you know, the the abstract one. And it was just so beautiful to see all of it. And also, they had to do it in a way that both him and America, right, uh, Strange and America, they when they were jumping through, they were still having their same momentum right. cut into the different shots. Yeah, it was really impressive. And I was like, man, this is. <laughs> It's it's just beautiful, mm-hmm. you know. And that's what I do love about visual effects is that it isn't just about making real things. It's about making the unreal real. And I think this is one of the occasions where VFX artists can truly feel like an artist since they're tapping more into their creative side than the technical one. And of course, there's probably concepts that most artists need to match, but still, you're still able to satisfy those creative urges. And but for me personally, I really appreciate a good environment or a good set extension because I think it's one of the best ways to set the narrative tone or set the scene for a given project so that the audience can go, oh man, that looks real or that looks like a real place that these characters are in, you know? Yeah, like I said, there are place like time and place for that kind of visual. Dune would probably benefit from being realistic mm-hmm. because then we can believe the world of Arrakis mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff. But Doctor Strange, the people who watch Doctor Strange also watch Dune. But there's also this very hardcore sci-fi people and people who just want to eat popcorn mm. and hang out with their girlfriends or boyfriends yeah. to watch the shows. Yeah. Right. So they want something they can laugh at and have a good time. So you need to know what the show is about and not force photorealism on everything. Because again, the general audience really don't care as mm. much as you think about yeah. photorealism. They're like, hey, I see Spider-Man, I see Hulk, they all look kind of realistic. Mm-hmm. I'm enjoying the show. You can kill yourself trying to make the most photorealistic Hulk mm-hmm. character, mm-hmm. but it won't be as fun. Yeah, and I think there has been a lot of criticism recently about visual effects and people saying, oh my God, the visual effects is getting really bad and all that stuff. But me personally, I think visual effects has been doing great and I think it's actually improving Um and I think the limitations, again, I go back to our point about like budgetary limitations or time uh, constraints and stuff like that. Um, and if there's anything that I have more of an issue with, with the way entertainment is moving, I would argue is actually the writing. Um, and of course, there's a shot can be uh, pretty bad, but ultimately, is the writing good? And like you, like you said before, is the story good? Will it take away from the story? And I think writing is one of those things that, yeah, <laughs> it will take away from the story. So what do you think about that? Dude, if you're 14 years old and you watch Marvel, you will love this shit. <laughs> when you're watching it, when you're 24, you're 34, 44, of course, your life perspective and your intelligence yeah, level is very, <laughs> very different. And then you pick apart everything about a movie and, yeah. then, and, and then what's going to happen, yeah. right? The thing about all these stories in the MCU is like, it's a leap of faith, right? It's like, okay, it's fantastical things that are mm-hmm. going to happen. Technically, if someone was exposed to gamma radiation, is he going to turn into the Hulk in the real world? No. <laughs> but you, it's cool you see a Hulk and he tears a tank, yeah. it beats shit, you know, beats people up or yeah. whatever. And it's fun, yeah. right? Iron Man in the Hulkbusters suit in Age of Ultron. Mm-hmm. You want to see it. You use it as a kid. You would have toys and you just smash and yeah. break all the Lego or whatever you have. And that's what you're seeing on screen now. Mm-hmm. And then you become overly critical about all of this. Yeah. And then you're just going to become this angry old man, not satisfied with anything on TV. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the problems is also comparison. People mm-hmm. are always comparing they do. every different show. I mean, we can have a small conversation on like the dumbness 
-hmm. of certain characters now. Yeah. But the ultimately, these shows were not made by you. Yeah. It was made by a filmmaker, and they all have different agendas. Mm -hmm. So either you watch it, you enjoy it, or you watch it, you don't enjoy it. But to go and keep berating visual effects artists for not doing their job. <laughs> I think you know. What? I just want to say this: I love the Transformers movies, and people think that's weird because they're like, "It's directed by Michael Bay. Why are you watching that? It's not that good." Um, I'm not watching it for the story. I'm not watching it for a life-changing experience. I am watching this for pure entertainment. One of the reasons why I love the Transformers movies so much growing up and um, just watching them uh, as I got older and repeatedly is because I was really impressed by the visual effects behind uh, that franchise. When I first saw Optimus Prime transform, I thought that was the most real thing I've ever seen. And I genuinely thought that they got animatronics and stuff like that to make this possible because i was like how in the hell do they make every part of this look so real and tangible to the world and this just goes back to your point about saying ultimately movies tv shows and all this form of media is actually entertainment and if it has fulfilled its purpose of being entertainment for you if you were entertained then it's done its job and it's not a bad thing that something that's designed for entertainment is only there to give entertainment. Um, it's not just supposed to be a life-changing experience all the time. And I think that's something most people should start to accept more and be less critical about everything. You have to first figure out that entertainment is not for everyone. Mm. Like, what I mean by that is like, there are entertainment for specific groups of people. Like the people, like I said, who watch Dune are more interested in that kind of world building and all that kind of stuff are not necessarily the people who are going to be watching Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Return to the Shadows, you know. They could, but I'm just saying there are different people who enjoy different things. Mm -hmm. If you are into the MCU, maybe you're not a fan of Star Wars. Mm -hmm. If you're a fan of Star Wars, maybe you're not a fan of Harry Potter. Of course, some people can be fans of everything, mm -hmm. but you just can't say why Star Wars not like the MCU, why the MCU is not like the DCU. Mm. You know, I like my superheroes uh, dark and gritty. I hate MCU. Yeah. I say the MCU is not for you. Yeah. It's for MCU fans. Yeah. <laughs> the DCU is for DCU fans. Yeah. Harry Potter is for Harry Potter fans, mm. right? Yeah. And it's like there is a crazy need to have your two cents on everything. Mm. And I'm like, no. It's like if you don't like the sound of a guitar mm. don't buy the guitar <laughs> and then criticize the guitar and you know there are certain students that join our school that don't watch movies at all or haven't watched movies before and that always boggles my mind but do you think it's a problem for someone to enter the visual effects industry with no key inkling towards movies or any interest, invested interest in TV shows or stuff like that? So when it comes to, yeah, definitely having watched movies and having some kind of vested interest in the story definitely can push you on hard days to get out of bed and say, you know what, I'm doing my part to tell the story. Um, how Because if you're really invested, like for example, maybe there's a new spin-off of Harry Potter and if you're a Harry Potter fan you've probably read the books you probably watched all the movies you know more trivia than a regular person and now it's your chance to contribute something so you may even contribute one or two good ideas and that pushes the shot to be from good to great and then the next person who watches has more enjoyment out of it but if you're not invested in the franchise the story then you just do the bare minimum to get the shot across. And the audience may not necessarily be able to detect it, but other people can look at it and be like, oh man, this shot could have been a lot more fun or better, mm -hmm. right? And I think people who have more investment in those stories uh, tend to become better artists when contributing for those shots. Like if you watch a lot of the rings, you know, it's been 20 years since it came out. It's still a labor of love. Every frame, like you, you, you see Rohan, like you go in and you're like, oh my God, look at the D 
detail, sculpting, or gondor. It's so beautifully done, practically. People took the time and effort to like build all these tiny details into the shot. Even today, I still remember shots from that show. Oh, me too. Yeah, it's because it was a label of love, but you generally don't get that with a lot of productions. It's just like, oh, okay, just another movie. <laughs> just do shots, yeah. right? So if you have people who are really interested, then a lot of great ideas will come out from that interest. That's one of the reasons why Star Wars became so popular because it was just a bunch of guys who were like, we're just going to do what we want. Mm -hmm. And they poured all their heart and soul into that show. And it shows mm -hmm. decades later, you know, you watch it and it's like, wow, this is some, it's a work of art. Artists from our school graduate from the program and they come in with a set of goals and each person has different sets of goals. There's a couple that have goals that they want to work on Star Wars. Some want to work on Marvel. Some have uh, ambitions to climb the ladder and become a VFX supervisor and all these things. And I guess what I'm trying to say is, should someone work on a show that they want to work on uh, when they're graduating from the program or be willing to accept any job or project that comes their way initially when entering the industry? And first of all, I'm not the person to be telling you what your goal should be. <laughs> True. And if it's your goal, then by all means, have it, right? I'm not saying this is better than that. Your goal is it's a terrible goal to have, yeah. you know? I said, no, my, um, I'm always a person about, okay, what is your goal? Mm -hmm. And say, I want to work on the next, say, um, Avengers movie. So then what are the steps required to get there? It's more of the, my concern. Mm -hmm. So you have to make a plan, right? You have, if you want to be a compositor on the next Marvel mm -hmm. movie, then you got to first figure out which studios work on Marvel. Then you got to figure out how do I get into those studios mm -hmm. as a junior artist, right? Then when I get there, it's like, how do I become a mid-level artist, a senior level artist? Am I going to be open to criticism? How do I take criticism mm -hmm. and be professional about it and not take it too hard, like on a personal level? Mm -hmm. Then which areas of my skill set I'm lacking? Right. And then you train yourself for all of that. So... It's not like how many years it will take you to reach your goal. It's like how many steps will take you to reach your goal. Right. So that's what I'm concerned about. And you know, the world's going to be much more happier if you achieve your goals. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Rather than me saying, oh no, this is the only way. And I always talk about this as like the purpose of life is like if you said to everyone, the purpose of life was to climb the highest mountain. Yeah. We all will be climbing the highest mountain. Yeah. But the great thing about life is no one knows. Mm. So it's up to the individual to create that purpose. Right. Some people have no purpose. Some people have purpose. Who is to say, you know, one is better than the other. Yeah. And I think this actually brings me to my next question, uh, which is what is the fastest way and how to approach achieving your goals in particular with visual effects because there are many different avenues and different options that one individual can take to enter into the visual effects industry but i think there's going to be a lot of listeners who are going to be most curious about how to approach it um, that suits them potentially and what is going to be their fast track into the industry in moments time uh, i mean like I said, some people don't need the education. Mm -hmm. Some people need the education. All we do is offer you a path mm -hmm. and say, if you follow the plan, this is the likely outcome you're going to get. I'm not going to go on Reddit and say, oh no, why pay money to go to school? Mm -hmm. You should be watching YouTube. Mm -hmm. You should be paying for tutorials and whatever. Because what works for one person doesn't work for the next person. Right. Only you can decide that. Yeah, what is right for you. Yeah, and if you look at the visual effects industry, it's made up of students from all over the world going from different universities under different kinds of educational system. Mm -hmm. There are people who uh, used to be architects who are now artists, people mm -hmm. who used to be lawyers who are artists, mm -hmm. people who started from high school who are artists. So there's no one right way. Yeah. It's just that we as a school provide a way that is easier. And this is a really good advice to people who are uh, wanting to enter the industry. 
And it's almost a wake-up call type of advice is to really reflect on yourself. What are you capable of? And what can you do? And what do you need? Because when you go online and you see a lot of people saying, oh, you can just learn by yourself. Can Do you know if you can learn by yourself? Can you do that? Because each person is different. That person might have suited in that environment. Do you need a different set of of do you need to be in a different type of environment do you need a different type of uh, support to be able to get through and learn the type of stuff that require is required of you in the visual effects industry because that that's the key right you can't just go on the post and and someone will always self-proclaim about how they approached it but how they approached it is how they did it and how you're going to approach it might be similar to that but yours always going to have a different style to it so what is your style what suits you you know what i mean yeah i think coming back i can only talk from my personal experience like mm-hmm. because i was in singapore and there wasn't any like high-end visual effects school or even studios at that time but i wanted to learn how to do it and i was hungry enough to want to know because I didn't really have a lot of money, so I went to the local universities, uh, sorry, uh, libraries, and uh, what then I did was I would rent out all these books about visual effects and take out all the DVDs uh, and with assets, and <laughs> I would just rip them all out <laughs> and keep in, in a file. And then whenever I got the chance, I would look inside and see how other people do it. And I kind of reverse engineered that process. And I've been doing that for a long, long time. So that's how I gained the experience. So the benefit of saying learning from an instructor uh, at any school is, you know, if that instructor was an artist, you have that resource, the, the accumulation, and also curation of the, the, of the information. Because just not having information is good. It's like library. If you go to the library, there's thousands of books. But what is the order in which you should read and which books should you read? That's where a mentor can come in and guide you and say, if you read these books, you will come to this conclusion. You can stumble upon this through your own research and hard work and dedication, or you can just ask a guy who's really good at it and he can tell you. But unfortunately, a lot of artists are still working in the industry and may not necessarily have the right aptitude for teaching. So it's very rare to find people who are very... Um, who are very experienced and also willing to share and not berate you when you're making mistakes because that's also important. You don't want to be discouraged when you do not know something. So at Lost Boys, at least we we, we try our best to find instructors who kind of tick all the boxes. They have experience. They're very nice to students. They they can guide you so that you you spend less time fumbling around (laughs) and more time doing stuff yeah, what do you recommend then for people who are not seeking education right now or planning to just you know i guess they're just trying to start dabbling into the visual effects world more than uh committing to anything big like and uh going to school or anything like that so what do you suggest is a good first step uh or advice that you can give them right now that they can do uh without applying to school or whatever yeah first of all i think is to figure out like you have to do a little bit of everything so like I want to be a visual effects artist. It's it was a good answer maybe fifteen years ago, but we are so departmentalized. So first of all, you got to figure out which department you most likely enjoy. How do you know, right? So okay, do a little thing. Maybe model a car. Then you take that car and you unwrap it. Uh, then you do some bit of texture work. Then you do some shading. Then you do some lighting rendering, and then maybe you want to animate it. Uh, maybe you animate, then you render, and you can do effects, and then you composite. Maybe you want to do a matte painting, right? So you do try all these different areas, and you see which one you really enjoy. Because visual effects, and I'm not the first person to say it, is you can actually break it into two major categories. It's like, are you a person who's interested in how things move or how things look? It's not necessary you're exclusive to one or the other, but you generally will have more leaning towards one or the other. I'm a person who cares about how things look as opposed to how things move. And even in the movement section, I'm generally not care about how characters move. I'm more more like on the effects side of things, the more the abstract, the natural phenomena, because that's how I'm trained. So 
you've decide you know, after you do all this thing maybe spend a year messing around and you and you know there are lots of great website like I always say for a comp that the guys at video co pilot they do a great job of in doing after effects right you kind of thought new doesn't matter use after effects learn maybe you like putting things together and how it looks and then that will lead you to the next phase okay now i want to do it professionally then you start looking around how can you do it professionally maybe school is a path for you maybe just training yourself because there's a lot of compositors who never had formal training in compositing they just pick it up because someone <laughs> they needed a compositor and you raised your hand and then you got a job <laughs> and then through that you learn um and the same way how someone becomes an effects dd or a modeler or an animator is because they tried if you try a lot of things early then you figure out what you like and what you dislike mm. and if you don't figure this out and you just go to a school they're going to try to do everything for you mm. and then you might be matched to the wrong department so you might be a person who's really interested in compositing mm. but then you end up doing animation and then you just hate yourself for it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I think the tip is pretty much go explore, learn about the pipeline and figure out where you lie because again, this is a departmental type of job. There's so many specializations, so many specific departments. So if you might not like compositing, you might like animation. If you don't like animation, you might like effects. If you don't like effects, you might like being a layout artist. So there's just so many layers to this field. that you should just go ahead and explore try out different things and figure out and eventually it will guide you to one area that's specific to you that suits you the best and i think that's really about embracing this aspect of exploration and learning about the industry as a whole like a lot of students who join lost boys who do the effects program are very interested in building systems so that means they are predisposed to create systems they they want something they program and then it does its job right so that's the kind of personality that they have maybe these guys also be very good with lego mm. you know they they create all these conditions and systems and they they organize things so that's a person you're already predisposed to most likely enjoy doing this whilst if you're a born artistic person you always like taking pictures you like to blend them together maybe compositing But if you're a kid at school that's always drawing, but you don't just draw single pictures, you 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 draw it on your textbook on all the edges like yeah. an animation. Yeah. So maybe you are predisposed for animation, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So you will find it, and that's why as young people, you have to be encouraged to try different things. Mm. And then some of you might find it when you're 19 years old, what you want to do for the rest of your life. Mm. Some of you might find it out when you're 40 years old, what yeah. you want to do with your life. any changes what you might start out being an animator and maybe transition to something else and this goes back to what andrew said in our previous episode it's episode 3 if you haven't already taken a listen to it check it out it's on our spotify vfx lounge um and he said embrace your visual effects journey because it will eventually lead you to where you have to be so i'm going to end this episode here with gans thank you so much for joining us today and i'll hope to have you again soon all right Yeah, thank you, Q. It was great <laughs> chatting with you. Yeah, uh, we chat every day. Yeah. <laughs> out there in the public. <laughs> thank you guys all so much for listening to our new episode. We'll make sure to have weekly episodes out as much as possible. So make sure to follow us on our Spotify. Have those notifications on to know when our newest episode is out. We'll have more industry professionals who will be joining us to speak more about visual effects and how everything works. But until then... Thank you all so much and have a pleasant rest of your week and see you in the next episode. Go make awesome.